WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. A grand jury has indicted 10 members of the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity after a 2021 incident at the University of Missouri that left a freshman in a wheelchair, blind, and unable to speak. Ten Pennsylvania high school students are charged in a case that involves sexual assault perpetrated under the guise of hazing. Also in 2021, Stone Foltz died at Bowling Green State University after drinking a bottle of bourbon in less than 20 minutes in another hazing incident. And the New York Times reports that Virginia Commonwealth University will pay nearly $1 million to the family of Adam Oakes, a student who died also in 2021 from alcohol poisoning at a fraternity party. Despite the fact that school administrators across the U.S. say they won't tolerate hazing, they've launched outreach efforts to educate students and parents, and they've suspended Greek organizations that violate school policy. The practice of hazing and the resulting long-term injuries and deaths continue. That's the focus of award-winning filmmaker Byron Hurt's most recent documentary, called Hazing. His other work includes hip-hop beyond beats and rhymes, and soul food junkies. All three documentaries have aired on PBS's Emmy Award-winning series, Independent Lens. He joins me now. Byron Hurt, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you with us. Jack and Wendy Abley lost their 18-year-old son, Ryan, in a hazing incident in 2016. After the members of Sigma Nu Fraternity at University of Nevada, Reno, forced him to drink a bottle of alcohol, Ryan fell down a flight of stairs, sustaining a head injury. He never regained consciousness and died 11 days later. Jack Abley joins us today on Zoom. Jack, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Appreciate you guys, you doing this broadcast. Absolutely. Before we talk about what actually happened to Ryan as he was pledging this fraternity, Sigma Nu. Tell us a little bit about who Ryan was. What was he hoping to become? Uh, Ryan was a a fun-loving kid, um, very outgoing, a playful kid, had a lot of friends. Um, His his goal was to, he wanted to go into broadcasting. He wanted to be, um, uh, especially with sports broadcasting. And um, in high school, he um, played water polo, played baseball, and then he also um, would do some announcing for the intramural sports. It's, it's kind of funny, but he and his buddy, um, it, it was dangerous to give him a microphone because he loved to chat, and, and he was a pretty funny individual and um, kind of a character, and um, it was just a well-known, playful, fun-loving kid. What did he tell you about deciding to pledge Sigma Nu? He told us that uh, he told us that that he he and several friends went around to uh, see the different fraternities and it was something that he wanted to do. Um, yeah, I was a little apprehensive, but uh, it was something he wanted to do. And um, the the Sigma Du house was like one of the largest, most beautiful houses. In, you know, nearby and had a big full court basketball court out front and Ryan liked to play and he was, um, it just kind of made sense. I think he, I think he wanted that social interaction and especially for an 18 year old, you know, you, you, you've got limited 
things you could sit in a dorm room or you want to go out somewhere, you know, you can't get into a bar, so you can't interact. It's, it's harder to meet people, make friends and meet, you know, meet girls. But at the fraternity, there's, there's always going to be a party. There's always going to be an event. There's always going to be something fun to do. And, and that's what I, I believe that's what attracted Tim to it. Well, it's got to be a little bit nerve wracking anytime a parent sends their kid off to college because at 18, he's still a kid. Yeah, very much so. I mean, he lived at our house, you know, his entire life and then uh, dropped him off up in Reno at the end of August. And then uh, the uh, recruitment process for the fraternity starts almost immediately. And um, yeah, he wasn't on campus long enough to really figure things out or have a good perspective. But uh, um, and then this happened middle of October. So, yeah. Do you remember the moment you got the first phone call about this? Yeah, absolutely. It was an early morning phone call that woke us up. And um, the person on the other end of the phone, you know, confirmed our identity and, and said that our son was in the hospital, that he had fallen down a flight of stairs and uh, suggested that we come up right away. And Reno for us is about a two and a half, about a three hour drive from where we live in, in Northern California. And so we hopped in the shower, got in the car and, and started driving. And I just remember thinking, what was he doing on stairs? I don't, I don't get it. Cause he was on the fourth floor of his dorm. And I'm thinking they've got an elevator. We moved him in or what's, what's he, you know, what was he doing up so early in the morning? None of it really made sense. And so we're trying to, we're trying to factor through that. We had no idea that he was at the fraternity that night. We had no idea that, of the event plans. Um, so it was a surprise. And when did it start to become clear that this did happen as part of his pledging activity with Sigma Nu? That was much later because, um, so on, on the drive up to Reno, we, we called the hospital again and they put a surgeon on the phone and said that he had uh, a fractured skull, bleeding on the brain, and they wanted to do emergency surgery to relieve the pressure on on him and give him a chance to to get through this and so at that point we knew the severity of it but it still didn't make sense and when when we first got up there the stories we were hearing was just uh he just fell like we don't we don't know what happened he just he's he going down the stairs and he just fell and, and none of it made sense to me and, and i looked at him and other than this massive head injury, he didn't have any a scratch on him. So I'm looking at his arms and look, I'm thinking, if he fell, why isn't his shoulder separated? Why isn't his forearm broken? Why didn't he get his hands out in front of him and protect himself? Why didn't he adjust his body to, to do this? And none of it made sense. Um, and we just kept getting these innocuous, golly gee whiz stories that, that uh, I wasn't buying into. And these were coming from members of the fraternity? Correct. Yes. And um, and so how correct. did how did you actually wind up getting the whole story? Because you did get a pretty detailed version of what happened eventually. We absolutely did. And what, what finally kind of broke me out of my, you know, my shock and, and concern, because at first we're just thinking, is he going to live? Is he going to survive? And um, and it wasn't making any sense. So I finally asked the nurse what his blood alcohol level was. And, and, and in my mind, I had kind of walked it through because they said, yeah, we did some drinking the night before, but nothing in the morning and all this. I'm thinking, okay, if you drank the night before and got to a 0.10, 0.12, 
in the morning, he should be virtually zero. He should be at 6 a.m. He should be virtually zero, maybe 0.01, maybe 0.02, but just a trace. And the nurse told me 0.30. And at that point, I thought she was wrong. I said, no, you transpose that, you need 0.03. And she said, no, 0.30. And I, I, I couldn't you know, accept that. I must have asked her four times. And, and then she went back and checked and said, no, 0.30. And so at that point, I'm going, okay, if he was 0.30 in the morning, he had to be 0 0.4, 0 0.45 at night. I go, this is this is absurd. They somebody did this to him. He, there's no way on God's green earth he would get to that point on his own. I go, there's a lot more to this story. Plus the fact he didn't have any, and that would explain why he didn't get his hands up or twist or adjust his body to try to break his own fall, because he was incapable of doing that at that point. And you and your wife eventually filed suit. We did. We did. And that was like our third choice. First we went to the university and to the, the UNRPD. And um, the, the way we got to the story is we reached out to Ryan's friends. He, he, he pledged along with two of his buddies that he'd gone to high school with, that he had played baseball with and had known. So I reached out to those two. And one of them actually walked up to me in the hospital on day one and said, Mr. Abley, I only care about Ryan. I don't care about the fraternity. And I, I didn't know what that meant. It didn't even register, but once we figured out the alcohol level and started finding out their stories weren't making sense. I reached out to those two guys, his two buddies and a third guy that he met up there. And they went into the police and told the story first. And this was like four or five days after the incident. And the police were moving way too slow for me. And um, that's why we can, I continued to press the issue. You eventually settled the suit in 2019 mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. confidential settlement. Correct. But yes. how, yeah. how do you think about this now? And uh, Byron Hurt, the documentary maker, maker who, who created Hazing, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, has addressed the fact that you, you have to keep retelling this story mm -hmm. of your son's death. It's hard enough to lose a child, but to mm -hmm. lose a child and then have to keep talking about it. Is that healing or re-traumatizing? Um, it's, it's, it's really a little of both. I mean, it is, it is very difficult because you're reliving it and you're tapping into those emotions again. Um, but I just really appreciate Byron for getting the, getting the, the story of so many people out. He, he covered such a wide range, um, in this documentary and, and, and hit to the, so many interesting elements about what, what, what goes into it and, um, just fraternities, sororities. It's just, it's, it's a, a wide range. Um, but I also want to get the word out, especially now, because it's the time of year where they're recruiting and they're going through this rush process again. And, and it, it's it's ideal that people know, because I frankly had no clue. I mean, I was oblivious. I just, um, you know, and I feel really naive looking back. I wish I would have known. Um, so what would you it, say to parents and potential pledges at, at this point? I would say in terms of the fraternities, I would say don't do it. I would not do it until they reined it in, until there was, you know, definitive proof that they're not going to do this. And, and you know, some people say, well, do your homework and check them out. But in Ryan's case, Sigma Nu had this pledge manual that said you, you will have a dry pledge experience, which is obviously total BS. And they said that, um, you know, you would not be forced to do anything. Um, they just... Yeah, it's, it's just all BS. Um, yeah. Jack Abley, thank you so much for being with us today and telling us your story. 
Absolutely. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at hazing, the practice that continues within Greek organizations despite its dangerous history. After this short break, a closer look at why it's so hard to break the cycle. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Jack and Wendy Abley lost their son Ryan in a hazing incident at a fraternity. That was 2016. Since then, more than 35 young people have died in the U.S. as a result of hazing. According to Hank Neuer, a journalist who tracks hazing statistics, at least one hazing death has occurred every year from 1959 to 2021. Byron Hurt, an award-winning documentarian, recently produced Hazing, a film about the harmful practice in which he tells his own fraternity hazing story. And Byron, we're going to get to that in a moment, but we just heard Jack Abley say, I would tell people, just don't do it. Don't get involved with fraternities at this point because it's too dangerous. What do you think about when you hear him say that? Is that extreme? He lost his son to a deadly hazing incident. Um, And so I can fully appreciate his position on that. And I'm sure his wife, Wendy, probably feels the same way. Um, So um, I can understand why he would urge people to not do it, because um, many of these hazing rituals or these traditions are not supervised, um, and they are not... Um, being conducted by people who fully understand or appreciate some of the negative consequences or the outcomes. I mean, these these are young people. You they're, mentioned it earlier. They're, they're kids mm-hmm. still, you know, in college, playing, experimenting with alcohol and um, other really risky rituals that can be harmful to people. So um, I can understand that. I'd probably feel the same way if I lost my, my child. Yeah. And you also said Jack and Wendy Abley appear in your documentary, Hazing. How, mm-hmm. how did you wind up connecting with them? Well, I met Jack and Wendy Abley at a PUSH conference, Parents United to Stop Hazing, um, where parents convened to talk about ways that they could unite and do something um, that was actionable um, to advance um, legislation, or to even just p- provide support for other parents who um, were still grieving the loss of their child. And that's where I met Jack and Wendy Abley. And I will never forget the, uh, the interview that I conducted with them. You know, I was, I was in your seat as an interviewer. And, um, you know, it was what, I, what strikes me is that it was the one-year anniversary of Ryan's death to the day. And... Ryan's mom was extremely emotional and and understandably so. And Jack was he was very strong in conveying the message of what happened to their son. It was it was it was an amazing moment for me because I could tell as an interviewer that 
Jack was being a protector even though his son was gone. He was protecting his son's legacy. He was standing in for his son. He was standing in the gap for his wife who was too emotional to really even talk in that moment. And I'm just really thankful that they gave me, they shared that moment with me because it was, it was very difficult. You know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. They did not know me, yet they entrusted me with their story um, because they, they want to amplify this message that hazing culture has to stop. And they use their own personal story um, to, to help, you know, bring, a, bring about that message. So I'm deeply grateful for the, the Abley family for sharing their story and just listening to Jack as he spoke with you. It just reminds me, you know, how, how powerful um, Ryan's story is um, and, and the fact that, you know, as a family, they, they live with this every day. And you mentioned he, Jack was acting as the protector of his son's legacy. And some of the mm-hmm. er- other parents mention that in your documentary, Hazing. Yeah, yeah. They talk about how there's this tendency to blame the victim. Where does that come from? What, what is that dynamic? You know, I think I, I think it has a lot to do with people making assumptions about why young people join exclusive groups like fraternities and sororities um, to a lesser degree, like sports teams, or you know marching bands but for fraternities and sororities people think that these are young people who are making a choice they know what they're getting into um, they've made a decision to put themselves in that position and so it's easier to blame someone who was the victim of abuse as opposed to placing the onus on the abuser or the perpetrator uh, the person who's committing the crime um, than it is to blame someone who's actually been victimized by it. And to go even further, it's much easier to blame those two sides, the, the, the perpetrator and the victim, than it is to look at the much larger system that keeps all of this going. Which I want to talk about in a second. But first, one of the interesting angles of your documentary is the fact that you come into it willing to tell your own story. I mean, you connect with all of these parents who've lost kids, and and all of those stories are are awful, wrenching, so moving. But let's let's hear what you had to say about the whole idea of making a documentary about hazing. For for too long, I've held back from talking about the hazing I experienced out of loyalty to my fraternity, because of my fear of the consequences, and because I didn't want to be seen as a snitch. But that all ends now. Since you've made this and it's come out, has has anyone accused you of being a snitch? Has there been any blowback? Yes, there has been. A lot of that has come from uh, members of my fraternity, and members of uh, the Divine Nine, that's where I've experienced the most thus far. But that pushback, that backlash, has come from people who have not seen the film. Do you think it would be different if they saw the film? I know that it would be different because I've had people respond to the film once they've seen it. I've been getting so many emails, text messages, 
DMs on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, with people who have been directly impacted by hazing, abuse. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's call it what it is, abuse, some form of abuse. Mainly it's physical abuse. In some cases, it's emotional abuse, where they detail what happened to them and the fact that they've never spoken about it before, and they thank me for making the film. And it's the reason why I made the film in the first place. But I think that negative response, the pushback and the backlash comes from people who feel as if I am talking publicly about something that is supposed to be a very private thing within these exclusive groups. And so I'm airing dirty laundry. But I'm not really airing dirty laundry. I mean, my experience has been covered in the media before. You know, there are news stories. All you have to do is, is do a simple Google search, and you can hear very similar stories to mine. What, what I'm doing is I'm amplifying these stories, including my own, uh, with the intention of creating awareness, of um, empowering people to, to use their voice, to stand up, to understand what hazing culture is really about, um, and, to, and, to so eventually, and to eventually, you know, eliminate it. So what is it really about? Why does it keep going on and on and on, even though you also use a lot of Hank Neuer's statistics in yeah. your documentary, Hazing? Yeah. And his website, you know, he makes it very clear they're unofficial statistics, but there's no other place that really seems to track that. And he also points out it can be hard sometimes to connect a death to an actual hazing incident because sometimes it's called suicide or, or partying or, or yeah. other things. So to, the answer to that question is very complicated and, and nuanced. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that these are traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And the whole purpose of seeking membership is to is to gain acceptance it is to it is to feel as if you belong to an exclusive group or an organization and that you have earned your way into this organization and you've done so in the very same manner that all of these great people have done before you who are members of this organization and so there are so many different reasons why people want to belong in these organizations in the first place. A lot of people reduce um, the, the type of desire to belong to a fraternity or sorority or an athletic team or a marching band as just wanting to be popular, to, to get girls, um, you know, to, you know, um, be able to go to, you know, go to parties and hang out and drink and all that kind of stuff. And for many people, that is the reason, Right. But there are so many other reasons why people want to do it. And people are willing to endure a lot in order to achieve that goal, right? You know, one of the things that someone said to me, um, this is someone who has done a lot of research on hazing, said to me during my process, is that most people who seek these organizations have been in student leadership, you know, in elementary school, or not in elementary, I'm sorry, in like from middle school all the way through high school, right? So these are leaders who are trying to take that next step once they get to college to become a part of an organization that has demonstrated leadership on campus, right? 
And so there's an intense desire to, um, to advance yourself, right, by be- becoming a member of this organization. And so if it means that you have to go through these traditions that everyone else has gone through in order to get the same kind of respect and the credibility and to be seen as a valued member, then people are willing to do that. No one goes into this thinking, well, I'm going to go through this process and I'm going to be injured or I'm going to suffer from emotional um, trauma or that I'm going to die. You know, nobody goes into it thinking or hoping that that's going to happen. But again, we're talking about young people who do not really see the long-term implications of psychological trauma, emotional trauma, and at the very least, they're not thinking about killing someone through these rituals. They're, at that age, they're, the executive part of their brain literally hasn't finished growing. But when I think of AKA, for instance, one of the Divine Nine, a yes. sorority that boasts as some of the members, Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. Toni Morrison, there is a chapter here in Wilmington that just separate, celebrated its uh, 90th anniversary, right. I think. It's hard to imagine that people that wise and together, and sure, the maturity happens over time, mm-hmm. but it's just hard to imagine that people from illustrious ranks like those mm-hmm. went through drinking episodes or violent episodes with their potential brothers or sisters? Yeah, well, you know, I, I can't really speak to their individual experiences. Um, but, you know, these are these are rituals that are almost a century old for some organizations that are, are that uh, that have been in existence for that period of time. And so, um, again, these traditions get passed down from generation to generation. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with this film, Hazing, uh, is to show some of the cultural nuance between organizations. So the kind of processes that take place in white sororities may be different than the cultural practices that take place in black fraternities, right? Or a marching band or, you know, uh, you know the military, right? They're, they're different. And so while some organizations may rely more on alcohol as like their method, the method that they use during hazing rituals or during, you know, pledge sets or whatever, may be different, you know, depending on the organization, depending on the, um, the cultural group, you know, that we're talking about. So, but, the, but the, the key attribute is that there's some sort of tradition or ritual that you are expected to go through in order to become what is considered to be a valued member, meaning that you did what it took in order to gain the, um, the, the respect and the admiration of the people who, ha- who are bringing you into this organization. So one of the things that you say in the documentary is uh, your process started out with an interview mm-hmm. that sounded chaotic and aggressive and yeah. as if they were trying to scare you and confuse you. Mm-hmm. What are some of, how did that progress and what happened to you? Well, um, you know, I have a background in gender violence prevention as well. I spent many years, decades, um, working with boys and men about the issue of uh, gender violence prevention and what boys and men can do to prevent it. And over the years, I've learned a whole lot about um, domestic violence, violence against girls and women, and what that process looks like. 
and I I won't compare the two directly because I won't they're not exactly the same, but there are aspects of it that are similar. So it starts out with emotional abuse, right? This whole idea that somehow you're not good enough, you're not worthy to be a member of this organization, that you've done something wrong to affront the members of the organization, and so therefore you have to prove your worthiness. And so little by little, you are working to try and um, please the members of the organization. Um, and you, you, it gets to a point where you become so devalued in your mind and so dehumanized that you are susceptible, you're vulnerable to other forms of abuse, whatever those abuses may be. And so for me, um, when I pledged in 1990, which is a long time ago now, but when I went through it, you know, it began with the emotional, the emotional side of things, and then it became physical. So, when and can so you as, tell us some of the things that well, they did to I you? mean, I would love for people to watch the film. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> they, can, they can do that at pbs.org/hazingfilm in order right. to do that. But uh, you know, I go into great detail about what what happened to to me um, when I was going through my process, which again is is some of the reason why there has been a lot of of, of, the, of backlash and push pushback. Um, but I guess the the overall point is that as a young man, I too I was eighteen, nineteen years old. Um, I was insecure about my manhood. I wanted to have the, the manly respect of the guys who were a member of uh, my chapter or the chapter I was trying to gain interest to. I had an uncle who was a member of the organization, that same organization, and I wanted to be able to to, to say to him that I made it. I, was I there to, ever a point that you thought, I got to stop, I can't do this, I need to stop? Of course there was, absolutely. There were many moments like that. But here again, you know, you're in a really difficult situation you know, and, and people think that it's easy to walk away, but it's really not because the, the alternative is to quit. And then you're known as a quitter. You're known as somebody who couldn't hack it, who wasn't strong enough. And from, from a male perspective, that's not the kind of criticism that you're willing to accept, right? It's hard to face a, any group of people, your, your peer group, you know, who think that you're not man enough or not strong enough or that you didn't have what it took in order to make it through that process. And so a lot of people endure whatever they're going because all they want to do is get to the other side. And they want to be able to say that I made it. That's what makes me different from you. That's what makes this organization exclusive. That's what makes me, you know, um, a respected member of this group. Because I went through what people have gone through for decades and even a century or more went through. Now, we're probably not going to have enough time to finish this this whole exploration here. But is there any part of you that thinks if it all stopped now and the younger generations didn't have to go through what I went through, that was a little, you know, they, then they're not as tough as I am. Is there any part of you that still feels that a little bit. I used to feel that way, but not anymore, because times change, society change, changes, people change, and we have to grow and we have to evolve as a society, and so I no longer think that way. 
You're listening to Coastline. It's a closer look at the practice of hazing, especially among Greek organizations on college campuses. My guest today, Byron Hurt, award-winning documentary filmmaker. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Cornell University's Student Code of Conduct defines hazing, in part, as any practice that coerces a person to engage in harmful behavior, either mental, emotional, or physical harm, including the consumption of alcohol, drugs, or other substances, to excess. With me to explore the practice of hazing today and its intractability as a problem is award-winning documentary filmmaker Byron Hurt, whose most recent work, Hazing, has appeared on PBS's Independent Lens. You've talked a little bit about the concept of maybe toxic masculinity. I'm not sure if I'm putting words in your mouth there and the connection to some of these hazing practices. And you've done your own work on changing your conception mm-hmm. of masculinity, what that really means. What does it mean to you now? And, and what do you teach younger people about masculinity? Well, as I said earlier, I've done a lot of work over the years working with boys and men in various spaces, the military, sports teams, um, in academic spaces, um, prisons, detention centers, talking about masculinity. Um, And so what I really try to encourage is um, really getting young boys and men to have the courage to step outside of what is traditional heterosexual masculinity, right? Um, Meaning not to get trapped by what the social and cultural norms of masculinity is. You know what I mean? Like to really... Uh, be fully expressed in who we are as men, that it's okay to be outside of that box. You don't always have to perform masculinity in the ways that we are socialized and conditioned to perform it. Um, and that that's, that's, it sounds easy, but it's a really difficult thing for boys and men to do because so much of what we do in the way that we order our lives is to earn the respect and the credibility of, of the men around us. Right. So that we are considered to be a real man. And so, you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, showing your emotion, being sensitive, um, talking about your frailty as a human being, being vulnerable. These are not things that are rewarded. Men are not rewarded for exhibiting those kind of traits. Um, And it's one of the reasons why we participate in violence, um, that we don't disrupt violence. Um, that we endure violence, you know, and that we accept violence culturally. And so what, what I, my, what the work that I try to do is to give voice to people who don't feel comfortable with that notion of manhood and masculinity um, and to empower people to stand up and to be their authentic selves, whatever that may be. So part of what I'm trying to attempt or what, part of what I'm doing with this film is to use myself 
um, in a way that gives other boys and men permission to actually stand up and to speak out against hazing culture, especially for boys and men who are operating in a space where it's not socially acceptable to do so. And so as a result, they remain silent and don't confront it at all. The only way that this culture is going to change, especially when it comes to boys and men and fraternity culture and maybe sports culture, is that we have to empower boys and men to actually stand up and confront it and to speak out against it and to change the culture from within. So for in order for us to get to that place that Jack Abley was talking about earlier, where it stops happening, mm-hmm. is we have to really train, educate, inspire, and create awareness on how we can change the culture to disrupt it. You said in your documentary that hazing, the practice itself, mm-hmm. is illegal in 44 states. When we talk about hazing, I mean, there was that definition from Cornell University's Student Code of Conduct. Mm-hmm. But when does it go from being maybe slightly creepy initiation rights to getting into this exclusive club to, to actually being hazing that is not okay? How, does, how would you coach a kid to kind of figure out where that line is? Well, you know, there are a lot of young people who experience hazing, but they don't call it hazing. A lot of people don't know how, how to identify what hazing is. And so I think the definition um, or the general definition, um, if, if, it's some, if you're, you're forced to do activities um, that make you feel humiliated or that abuse you, um, that traumatize you in any way, that's, that's hazing. That's, that, that is the line, and that's, that, that's a personal line. Um, and it's, it's subjective on some level, um, but it's, it's one that people don't, they don't really know how to identify it. They don't know how, they don't have the language to actually speak it when it happens. So, um, you know, I really think that that definition needs to be, um, more commonplace. It has to be more universal, um, across the country so that people can, um, teach it and people can identify it when they see it and when they feel it. Are there new practices that you think fraternities and sororities could undertake that would serve in that, you know, as the initiation space that would be something achieved by a pledge but wouldn't be hazing or harmful? Well, you know, in this film, we don't prescribe any solutions or any new creative ways to um, to shift the culture or to change the culture other than saying that there needs to be a cultural change. I believe that young people are smart enough, they're creative enough to come up with their own reversioned um, definition of, you know, rites of passage programs that work for them that don't include hazing. There is one organization um, that I learned about that does not practice hazing. What they do is they take the gifts and the attributes and the strengths of the individuals who are seeking membership into that organization, and they challenge them in a way to get better at those things. They push them to get better at, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever strength that they walk into the room with, they try to build upon those strengths and challenge them to get better at that in a way that's going to help benefit the organization. And that, and they create um, experiences um, and sessions designed to create bonding based on that. 
And so um, that was probably one of the most creative uh, things that I had seen uh, during the process of making the film. You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is Byron Hurt, award-winning documentary filmmaker. His most recent work, Hazing, appeared on the PBS series Independent Lens. One of the issues that you explore in this film, Byron, is how entrenched this whole problem is. So can you take us through kind of what tends to happen after, um, you know, we heard from Jack Abley in the first segment, his son Ryan died in a hazing incident. So that happens. The university officials come out and say, oh, this is terrible. The older members of the fraternity in question come out and denounce the activities that that caused it to happen. But what really happens? Why doesn't it stop? That is a really good question. You know, over the course of uh, the time of, you know, that it took to make this film, I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of articles um, of hazing deaths. And when you read these articles or when you watch news stories, it's almost like a template that the university <laughs> um, responses look like, you know, look and feel like. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same kind of response. Um, the university does not condone this behavior. Um, you know, our hearts and our thoughts go out to the family. Um, this was a tragic event that did not have to happen. You know, that, that sort of thing. And then there's the sort of um, covering up, you know, the, the unwillingness to take responsibility or accountability uh, to point in another direction, to and point the other way. And who isn't taking, who in this process is not taking responsibility? In many cases, it's... Um, the leadership at the university level that fails to take responsibility uh, for the actions of the young people on their campus. What pressure are they under to not take responsibility? Why, why don't they? Well, there's a tremendous amount of liability, you know. I mean, they, they risk being sued. Uh, they risk um, losing money, right? So, I mean, so they're self-interested in their efforts to try and distance themselves from the organization that is, you know, under investigation. Um, the fraternities and sororities also want to do whatever they need to do to protect themselves because they're self-interested in maintaining themselves as an institution. Um, and so some of these lawsuits are in the millions of dollars, you know, and many of these lawsuits, if successful, could completely wipe some of these organizations out. Um, some organizations are much more resourced than others, but, you know, a single lawsuit, you know, could have a really huge impact on, on an organization. So then and, why don't the organizations just squash the practice across all corners of their, uh, in every chapter? Why, why do they, why does it go on then? Well, I can't speak for every single organization, but I do know that there are organizations who have changed their intake processes and they have developed new systems um, for to to mitigate some of that harm and to mitigate some of the um, the liability that they are exposed to the risk that they are, are are exposed to. The problem is that there hasn't been full buy-in from the membership. There are many members who want these traditions to continue. They want these processes to continue because they believe that these these processes work. 
They don't believe that anything as serious as a death or serious injury is going to happen, although I believe that they, many people know that there's always the possibility of that, but no one thinks it's going to happen to our organization, our chapter. And it's important for older members to recreate their experience, to recreate their experience and have that, you know, uh, sort of continue through younger, newer members who are coming into the organization because it's it's just another way to continue that that sort of bond that takes place within the group with with the, within the 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 young the, within the within the people who have earned their way into the organization so many of these stories of survival that 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 you know that people have, have uh, earned they become like war stories they become the kind of thing that makes you one of the guys or one of the girls, you know? And so people don't want to give that up. In in your documentary, in the parental support group meeting mm-hmm. that you attended where parents were just talking about their the kids that they'd lost, you noted the fact that a couple of parents said this is not friendship, it's not brotherhood. Nobody was looking out for my kid even though they said that they were, and my kid probably believed that the big brother or big sister was looking out for them, but they weren't. I mean, it's actually anathema to the whole thing they claim to be about. How do they reconcile that in their heads? Well, again, people are young. People are they're leaving home for the first time in their lives. They're looking for a new home. They're looking for new family members. And fraternities and sororities or your athletic team, I played football when I was in college as well, these become your new brothers, your new sisters, your home away from home. And people are yearning for that sense of belonging. And, you know, it is my belief that young people believe that the people who have invited them into this process have their best interests in mind ultimately. And even though you may not understand it, even though you may, it may not make sense to you, even though it may feel chaotic and it may feel dangerous and risky and sometimes harmful and abusive, in, in your mind, you're thinking, they want me, they're testing me, they want to know whether or not I have what it takes in order to get in. And so you, you give up a lot of trust um, and give people the benefit of the doubt that they have you, that they have your back and they're not going to let anything bad happen to you. So if you could go back in time mm-hmm. to that moment when you were pledging your fraternity and the process started and you think about all of that peer pressure that's piled on top of you and how much you want to belong and the fact that your uncle has gone through this and and survived it and mm-hmm. is a brother, what would you say to that younger self? What would you do differently, if anything, at this point confronted with that? That's always a very difficult question for me because there's no way that I can go back, right? I, I know I'm, I'm much older now, and so everything when you look back is, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, I'll tell you what I wish. I wish that I was stronger. Um, I wish that I had higher self-esteem in that moment, during, that, during those moments. 
I wish that I had the leadership ability to disrupt it in the moment and to do something to try and change it, especially after I became a member. Um, I wish that I valued myself and respected my body enough to not let anyone harm me physically or emotionally. That's a hard place to get to when you're that young. It is. I mean, you were 18 Yeah, when you 18, pledged? 19 years old, somewhere around that, that age. And I know that it is. But I think that's what leadership building is about. You know, um, times change. You know, our society evolves. You know, when, when I played football, I wore a helmet with a face mask, right? And a mouth guard, and I had full pads. I didn't wear a leather helmet, you know? Um, right. You know, and that's because there were safety measures put in place to make sure that players were safer than they were 50 years before then. That's what we have to do with this issue. Right. The film is hazing. It's available at pbs.org. And that is this edition of Coastline. Byron Hurt, thank you so much thank for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks also to Jack Abley for being with us today. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by, or just send us an email at coastline at whqr.org. That's also where you can find this episode or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.